Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Encouraging Word. I'm here with Stephen Young, our Director of Youth Ministries, uh, Paul Bennett with you, uh, one of the pastors here at Rocky River UMC, and uh, glad to be back for another uh, exploration of some of the early uh, church leaders, and uh, at least uh, covering some of the, the principles that tie together uh, these folks and and some of the history of the early church, all of that uh, coming into play here. We, we focus on uh, some individuals, but uh, try and pull in some some themes and uh, some debates and controversy and just stir up some interest in this uh, period of of uh, Christianity that really launched us to where we are uh, today. So uh, Stephen and I are, are uh, fully immersed in this series and excited about uh, all that is to come. We know that there's a lot of uh, church leaders over the years, and, and so if we're going to cover uh, even a good chunk of the, the larger, more well-known ones, uh, it's going to take some time. So we'll be mixing in some other content uh, here and there as we go. Um, but uh, today we uh, continue on. Last uh, episode we covered uh, the first couple of centuries of the uh, history of the church, and so we'll be pressing on beyond that today. Um, but uh, before we do that, so we have, uh, as uh, tradition dictates, our fit segment. Uh, those things in Stephen or I's uh, life that have been funny or interesting or, or thought-provoking um, over the past uh, week or two that we could share with you just to mix things up. And, uh, you know, especially when we have uh, very, very uh, heady topics like we're diving into today, we want to have have some fun and, and uh, get some some uh, lighthearted material in there as well. So uh, for our fit segment today, my, mine uh, personally is, is going to be just to share a, a little family event that uh, um, I experienced in my family in the past week, and that's our annual tradition of uh, apple picking. Apple picking. So uh, this, this year was a, a strange year for apple picking in that we actually went out uh, one day. We, we were all excited, had a whole day set aside. The kids actually had the day off at school. And uh, so we thought not only um, would we have a, a... Did they have a day off just to apple pick? Yeah, well, that's a thing in the cities, you know, that uh, <laughs> kind of like the countries take a day off <laughs> yeah. or a week off for the county fairs. In the cities, it's apple picking. You're not aware of this? Is no, no, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it, in my household, at least. <laughs> no, my, uh, yeah, I think it was um, like teacher in-service day oh, or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of those that nobody really understands what it's about, but, uh, but we celebrate it nonetheless because the kids get a day off. And uh, we were able to able to take advantage this time, yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I guess um, not so much in the sense that we got out there and and uh, the one place was completely closed. They were, they told us they were out of apples, and the other place uh, said, "Well, we got a, a couple of trees that have one kind of apple on it." And we thought, well. That kind of you know sucks the fun right out of it. So uh, not being able to, to gather multiple kinds, and we like kind of exploring the orchard, going all over the place. So uh, we came back on a different day, and uh, we, we, we struck gold. We found a great place um, down in the Seville area and, and uh, had a, a great time. And uh, being a few inches taller than the average individual uh, comes in handy for apple picking used to be I would hoist the kids up on my shoulders, but now I'm too weak for that, and they're too big. Um, so Your I back's just, uh, too brittle now. Huh? I, yes, my bones and my <laughs> joints are too brittle. Um, imagine that. And uh, so uh, I was still able to get to some of the, the apples. A lot of people didn't, and we had a great time. 
uh, Melrose apples. Uh, we got some Granny Smith, a couple others. And uh, my daughter grabbed a little miniature pumpkin on the way out the door. And uh, we were standing in line to pay for it. And a guy just looked at me and said, is that all you want? You can have it. <laughs> so we, we got a free pumpkin uh, oh, to wow. boot. That's nice. So that's, that was our experience at a, a great family outing. Um, and I hope others are getting those uh, similar opportunities to enjoy the season of autumn. Nice. Um, my fifth segment, um, real quick though, we also went apple picking, so um, that's not my fifth segment though. I, I don't want to brag how much more apples we got than Paul, but um, <laughs> we'll have a way off. You right, bring your apples, have, yeah. and I'll bring mine. <laughs> And How about them apples, huh? Oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> See what you did there. <laughs> we should one next, of those. Year, next year, yeah, we should do a way off. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, we had a lot of apples. But uh, we should, probably should go to the same place to do it because it was kind of expensive where we went, but we did get a ton of apples. And the apples are, like, huge. I mean, they're, like, the size of many pumpkins almost. So at least yep. where we went. Yep. Your, yep. Where yours your apples big there too or? we we found some some uh pretty sizable apples we saw one kid walking out i don't know we I, the whole time i was looking i was trying to find the tree that he found this apple in it was like <laughs> the size of my head oh my. And, and so i was gawking at it as he walked right. by but he must have been in some magical corner right. of the orchard that i was gonna say maybe it was the, the the one tree in the center of the garden <laughs> that he got the apple from was the the apple tree of life <laughs> right the, right Right, and some snake told him uh, to grab it. So, <laughs> oh, that um, changes the tone. In <laughs> <laughs> um, my fifth segment is uh, my dad came down uh, last week to um, just to hang out with the family and the grandkids, and um, we also celebrated his retirement. And um, it was a lot of fun having my dad down. Um, he really likes it in Ohio. So he's from I'm from Kansas City, so my dad's living in Kansas City. Um, so he came up. Um, took the train up he enjoys the train and came up and stayed with the week and it was really great um he loves he loves the metro parks a lot uh, maybe more than his fam his uh, family but um <laughs> no <laughs> but he does like the parks a lot he was able to walk and jog and exercise out there and then um he went apple picking with us actually and um we celebrated his retirement retirement party and um, it was a good time. It was a really good time, and um, it's always good to have my dad up. And I know it's really cliche to say your dad's your hero, but, yeah, he's definitely my hero. Um, definitely one I look up to the most, especially with my Christian faith and as a father. But he has such a strong Christian faith, it's pretty incredible. So, mm. yeah, it was it was really great to have him up. Um, so, yeah, that's my fit segment. So my dad coming up and our apple picking. And as a, a parent... You know, when you have a good relationship with your parents and, and admire them um, and, and look to them, you know, as your hero, um, there's, it's, I think it's incredibly valuable, important to you to see them have a relationship with your children because you right. want to see uh, those qualities about them that, that you admire so much. You want to see your children be able to experience those as well. So I bet, you know, just having uh, having your dad around for uh, a week or so and, and uh, getting to see him spend some quality time with his granddaughters. And I know he's, uh, he's a, a fun-loving, goofy guy. I know he had fun yeah. probably playing tea parties and yeah. dress up and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, I bet that was uh, special as well. 
So, uh, you know, we transition somehow from that to this period of uh, persecution and martyrdom and ugliness <laughs> in the Christian church. Actually, there's a lot of amazing things right, uh, going right. on in this period as well. The church was growing like gangbusters. And, and uh, um, just quickly, a few notes to, to actually to that effect before Stephen launches us into our first of the, the church uh, fathers. Um, these are some notes that I took just uh, general to that time period. First of all, uh, the last group of uh, folks that we talked about were ones, I think specifically, that lived or were at least born during uh, the time when the actual apostles, the apostles of Jesus, were still alive and, and were still influencing uh, the early church in some way. This next group that we're going to talk about uh, the earliest of them was was born in 100 A.D. So I think, uh, at least my limited knowledge, I think it was the Apostle John who lived uh, longest and maybe died somewhere in the 90s. So uh, this uh, this person would have been born um, after he passed. And so this is that first generation to be totally distinct from the, the actual apostles of Christ. Um, and uh, they lived, uh, the ones that we're going to cover lived in the, the uh, first and, and second, the 100s and 200s. Um, they are called the anti-Nicene uh, church fathers or church leaders uh, because they anti, they were before the uh, creation of the Nicene Creed, which uh, took place at the first ecumenical council of AD 325. So we're talking that period of about 100 uh, to to the uh, the early 300s at the latest, and just uh, about where the church was during that time in the the first um, 50 to 100 years of of the church, there was incredible persecution, and uh, in, in the Roman Empire by the end of the first century, um, what I read was that uh, there were believed to have been fewer than 10,000 Christians because of the the persecution either. Uh, Christians denounced their faith uh, out of fear, or they, they were quite literally being extinguished uh, left and right. Uh, however, their, their faithfulness and, and the conviction that was uh, shown by those Christians that persevered uh, eventually was contagious and grew the church to uh, 40,000 uh, Christians by 8150, and then 200,000 by 8200. Um, and uh, the church, so the church was just spreading like crazy, uh, despite the persecution. There were still uh, pockets of persecution. It was uh, sporadic, um, so that's definitely a theme in the early church. But uh, um, but uh, the, this, at least, the, the most severe persecution from the first century had kind of passed, and uh, the church was settling into a, a rhythm here. Um, so, with that being said, uh, Stephen's got our, our first uh, person we're going to dive into. So the first guy we're going to be looking at is Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr was born in 100 AD, died in 165 AD. Um, he was raised pagan in a Jewish environment, um, and he studied a lot in philosophy. Um, and I might say these names wrong, but uh, Stoic, Platonic, and other pagan philosophies and then became a Christian in 132 AD. So he became a Christian a little later in life. Um, and he said Christianity is a philosophy corrected and perfected. He would he argued that Christianity is the true philosophy. Um, Justin Martyr also uh, spent a lot of his time opposing early heresies of Gnosticism, Gnosticism, Doetism, and Mac 
mechanism, um, which Paul and I have been discussing a little bit off air that we might actually do a, a podcast um, after this series, maybe it will, a standalone podcast on the early heresies of the church. Um, I think it's that's something I really want to look into because I think many many of these early heresies into the church, we're going to find um, some of the same things in our culture today. But that's a side note. Um, so his conversion quote is pretty. It's pretty amazing. He um, around as he became a Christian, one thirty two between one thirty one thirty two A D. And after conversion, he, he was conv- speaking to an old man, and he um, uh, his life was transformed through a conversation with this older man. Um, he said, a fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who, had, who loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher, and I wish that everyone felt the same way I do. Those are the words of Justin Martyr, and um, really fantastic words of of his conversion. Um, so Justin Martyr is really known for two letters, um, his first apology and second apology. Um, the second one was kind of, uh, second apology was kind of a supplement to the first apology, um, and his first and second apologies the first one, at least, he's addressing it to the emperor, the emperor Antonius Pius. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, it was first published in 155 A.D. and it attempted to explain um, Christianity, um, explain Christianity to the emperor that Christianity was not a threat to the state. He asserted that it should be treated as a legal religion, and he wrote on behalf of um, every nation. He wrote on behalf of every Christian within the nation that Christianity was not a threat to the state. Um, and the second apology was also addressed um, to the Roman Senate. Um, and the second apology was meant to expose the real reasons behind the recent persecutions of Christians under the emperor. It also tried to expose the utter irrationality of allegations and propaganda spreading against Christians. Um, so he was writing in defense of Christianity to the emperor, to the senate, um, to the Roman senate, under all this persecution that the Christians were facing. Um, he even argued that Christians are, in fact, the emperor's best helpers and allies at securing securing good order. Um, and it was convinced um, that the Christians um, would help, um, would be good citizens. Um, another quote um, from Justin Martyr, um, that when he was threatened by death, right, uh, when the prefect threatened him with death because Christianity was still being persecuted, Justin Martyr said, If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we hope to be saved. Right? Um, so he said no matter what the punishment, he hoped and knew that he would be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He also said no one who rightly um, minded, no one rightly minded turns from true belief to false belief. So he was truly believed um, in Christian Christianity and the message of Christianity, believing it was the true philosophy. Um, also, a little bit, a thing that's a little interesting about Justin Martyr, from his letters, we get a very good picture of the early church, um, post-apostles, so the post-Acts. Um, we get a very good, a very good description of the early church within his letters. Uh, and now, um, and just a side note, this is information that Paul and I researched online, um, 
I've gotten some stuff from gotquestions.org and some stuff from Wikipedia and some stuff from all different sources, Christian books and whatnot. So, um, yeah, we did a lot of, it, a lot of research here. Um, so one, from his letter, um, he explains, real briefly, he explains the, how a typical Sunday was. He said, on the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. Um, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So <laughs> they would read the scriptures as long as time permits. Uh, imagine that's how a Sunday was that <laughs> Paul or Dan would just continue to read the scriptures as, as long as they wanted. Um, then the reader would cease and the president and the discourse, which he calls president or minister, uh, discourse embolished. He would speak about what was read and urge um earth the imitation of these good things yet we would all rise together and send up prayers and after they pray they would do communion and then um, the pastor would come up again and give prayers and thanksgivings and then the people would sing and that's kind of how it would end so it is a really good picture of how the church all a lot of similarities that we see in the church today were going on um, in 100 um, AD and we see a lot of the foundation being laid so um, it's really incredible, really good stuff. Hmm. That's uh, that subject in particular is always fascinating to me. Learning how the early church worshipped, uh, because right. I, part of me recognizes that times are different now, and and so certainly things are going to look different. But I I, I still feel like um, there's there's something authentic and pure about trying to mimic at least some of the principles that were uh present in the worship of the early church you know <laughs> within the the lifetime uh in some of these cases of of the early apostles of christ uh you know what what did the apostle john or or peter um you know feel about what worship should look like how did they blend their for some of them their their jewish uh background with this uh, new covenant uh, established through christ and what did that do to their worship so uh, and, and yeah, I read that same thing that Martyr's um, apology talked about and, and described the worship of the other church. And thanks for breaking that down for us because it, it is encouraging to hear that most of the elements that were represented back then are still present in worship. Uh, but I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's some things we can learn from as well. Uh, maybe that we've lost sight of or we've changed our focus a little bit, uh, shifted just a bit. I'd also add this real quickly. He talked about too that they also took offerings and stuff, um, free will offering. He said people would give according to their means and those who are willing. But what's really interesting too, he said, um, essentially the pastor he would take the funds and give it to the orphans and widows, those who were sick, um, those who were who were in bonds or in prison. In other words, he said this is a quote. He said the pastor, um, in a word, becomes the protector of all who are in need and that, I thought that's an incredible way that the pastor is the protector of all those who are in need um, hmm. which is a really really cool way of seeing it oh, that's fascinating yeah. yeah I I don't know if this is worth the, the hop skip and a jump to the side but it, it does it reminds me of a, a scene from uh, I just read To Kill a Mockingbird in the last year or so, trying to catch up on the classics. And uh, there's a scene where um, these uh, two white children visit an African American church, and um, and they're astounded by the, you know, the, the um, 
the poverty that's represented by the people there and, and um, how simplistic the, the service is um, and kind of laid back and um, but uh, how pure I think astounded by that at the same time and one of the things that happens at the end of the service is the the pastor uh, stands up and he calls for the offering and people start bringing uh, a little bit forward and they go back and then he, they sit down and he looks around and he starts calling people out. He's like, you know, John, you haven't given yet. Come on up. Or, <laughs> or, or, or Betsy, I, I know you can do more than that. And he, he starts guilting them saying, uh, there's, you know, describing this family in, in their community that is in desperate need and saying, we, we have to raise enough, you know, for our, our friend to have his medical bills uh, paid or whatever the case was. And uh, he, he insists that the people keep giving, keep giving until they know that they can meet this need. So uh, an- another neat connection and, and uh, you know, just representing how authentic that practice, uh, at least represented in the book, still is going back to all the way to the early church. Um, other things about Justin Martyr, real quick, I found a lot of the same, maybe it was on the same website Stephen was, but uh, uh, just to, to clarify, when we talk about an apology, uh, so we say Justin Martyr wrote two apologies, um, it's, you know, in, in Scripture we call uh, most of the texts in, in the New Testament letters, and the apologies are, are kind of a form of a letter, and, and maybe uh, that word could be applied to some of the texts in the New Testament too, but it's specifically a letter written or a document written to uh, support and defend one's faith, uh, maybe in a particular area or subject, um, but I, I always found it ironic that you know, you you call it an apology, um, but it's you're really not apologizing at all. You're saying this is right. this is what I believe, like it or not. Right. Um, you're not apologizing, so it makes me want to go back and look at the uh, the, the origins root, of the yeah, word. Words yeah. Of the word. So that's what an apology is, if that helps. And uh, which and is where we get apologetics. Apologetics, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So obviously they they have to be rooted in the same uh, word, right. but the word apology just seems so different uh, in nature than those right. others. Uh, uh, Martyr um, once had a public dialogue with a, a Jewish thinker, Trifo, uh, when he was in Ephesus, the, the town um, that uh, the Book of Ephesians was written to, and a couple of the things he argued in his de- debate with this uh, individual were. Uh, one that the old covenant was passing away was making room for the new covenant. So this is just part of the dynamics of um, these early church fathers trying to work with uh, the the Jews that were hanging on to um, the the realities that they were accustomed to from their Jewish faith and background, um, trying to help them work in this uh, the content about Jesus and the Gospels into that. So he he argued that the old covenant was passing away, making way for the new. And that the Gentiles were now the new Israel, which I'm sure was not popular, uh, especially with the, the Jews at the time. Um, but to, to widen their thinking that the Gentiles could be thought of as, as God's new recipient. Um, and then lastly, uh, I just mentioned that uh, at the end of his life, Justin lost his head. Um, no, literally, he lost his <laughs> he lost his head. So... Under uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, Justin and his disciples were arrested and ultimately were beheaded. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that some of the persecutions were at least dying down less less uh, intense at this time. But clearly, uh, there were still pockets of persecution, sporadic, uh, widespread persecution, and and Justin Martyr, true to uh, his name, while he 
he acquired the name right, after right. the fact. It would have been really, uh, really, <laughs> I don't know. Is that irony or is that uh, right. depressing? If he had been named martyr and died a martyr, but um, but yeah, he was arrested and beheaded along with a number of his disciples. Uh, good to go, Stephen. Shall we turn to yeah. Irenaeus? Yeah, okay, Irenaeus. Uh, once again, we're we're um, acting like we know how to pronounce some of these words, uh, <laughs> only because I haven't had too many conversations with people who I'm convinced know how to pronounce uh, the name Irenaeus. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, Irenaeus, we don't know, uh, unlike a, a number of these other folks, we don't know his exact dates of, of birth and death, but uh, roughly 130 A.D. to about uh, 200, 202 um, A.D. And here's the context for where Irenaeus' story comes into play. Um, there's a, The area of modern-day France was once known as Gaul, and the capital of Gaul was Lyon. Um, and around uh, AD 177, the, the people in living in Lyon uh, were dealing with a lot of hardship. They were uh, suffering from a great plague. Um, there, were, there were enemies all around them that kept raiding and, and terrorizing uh, their, their village. And um, there was a lot of tension then amongst them because of all that they were going through. And, and the tension primarily existed between the Christians and the pagans in Lyon. Um, and the pagans ultimately began to blame the Christians for all of their bad luck and all the horrible things that were happening because they felt like the Christians were angering the pagan gods uh, by not worshiping them. And, and it was the Christians' fault that they were going through all of this. So uh, in AD 177, a number of Christians, uh, things boiled over and, and Christians were assaulted. They were dragged into the public square. Um, the authorities at the time refused to, to stand up to protect them. Instead, they had the, the Christians thrown in prison, and they turned everything over to the governor to decide what was going to happen. And eventually, uh, under the, the civil authorities at the time, many of the Christians were executed in public. Others were just uh, thrown in prison and, and uh, basically thrown away the key uh, so that they rotted in prison. And one of those individuals was uh, Pothinus, and he at the time was the bishop, which uh, remember synonymous to basically the pastor, the pastor of Lyon at the time, uh, was thrown into prison. He died in prison. And Irenaeus, our, our hero uh, that we're rolling into here, Irenaeus was sent to Lyon in the midst of all of this to replace uh, Pothinus as, as bishop of Lyon. Um, Irenaeus had already been there in previous years as a missionary. Uh, he had been had a background as a peacemaker amongst the churches of Asia Minor as they wrestled with uh, all these different sources of heresy. So he had a, a background in ministry and uh, a bit of diplomacy. Uh, but it just struck me. Can you imagine coming into Lyon uh, in this context? This you know, say, hey, Pastor Irenaeus, this is this is your new charge. <laughs> you know, you're just uh, don't worry, you're just going to Lyon where all the Christians are either dead or in prison. And what happened to the last pastor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he rotted and, and died in prison too. Um, but you'll be fine. Just go and you know uh, pick up the call and lead the church to uh, to back to thriving and and uh, and transforming your community. So uh, he came into a very difficult, to say the least, situation. Um, but uh, he he did leave quite an impact, um, not just as Bishop of Lyon, but also in his writings. Uh, what he left behind, he wrote. Um, one uh, document called Against Heresies, uh, specifically refuting Gnosticism. Um, and this was important not just because of how he refuted Gnosticism, but because 
uh, kind of the way things played out with Gnosticism, this, this huge, um, you know, very, um, very serious heresy that spread through the church. Uh, eventually, the church got their act together, and, and they kind of stamped out this uh, the spread of, of Gnosticism. Uh, but what happened afterwards is is they were they were so cautious uh, in in a desire to protect the people from falling back into it. They destroyed all the documents that the Gnostics had created uh, describing their beliefs. So uh, without um, Irenaeus's against heresies uh, document. Um, we wouldn't know a whole lot about Gnosticism because uh, as he refuted Gnosticism, he also referenced uh, those beliefs about Gnosticism uh, that Gnostics uh, held as he refuted them. So we learn uh, about Gnosticism in his arguments against, uh, against it, and otherwise we wouldn't know a whole lot about uh, Gnostics um, and what they believed in that day and time. Uh, a few other just uh, tidbits, uh, things that he accomplished. One, he advanced the development of the authoritative canon of Scripture, this idea that they needed to decide what was in, what was out, uh, as far as what actually qualified as Scripture. Uh, the office of the episcopacy, he, he played a role in moving things along as far as uh, eventually um, settling on this single leader system of, of the church as a whole. Um, and just uh, as a point of interest, he had uh, met and been influenced by Polycarp, uh, who we covered in our last episode. Um, and uh, Polycarp was the last of the, the first generation uh, after the apostles, was the last man standing who had actually uh, been influenced by the early apostles. And then, um, and then here Irenaeus was influenced by Polycarp. Um, and then uh, beyond that, just a last kind of fun fun fact, uh, Irenaeus, we, we mentioned, was a key leader in peacekeeping in, in the early church and all of the different debates and uh, struggling against heresy. One of the things that he helped resolve was the debate about when Easter uh, should be celebrated because uh, uh, those of, of Jewish uh, descent, Jewish heritage, felt like it should be celebrated on the same day as the Jewish Passover. Um, but some of the, the, the Greeks and, and the pagans who came into the church believed that it should be celebrated on the, the actual day of the resurrection. Uh, of course, we all know who ended up winning that debate, but Irenaeus was instrumental in keeping the peace as they sorted through that. Yeah, and all that. I also have that he did, had connections to Polycarp and also had some uh, connections to Justin Martyr as well. Um, so it was interesting. I, Irenaeus had a lot of connections and... Um, and uh, like we said, like I talked about before, I think you really need to do a podcast on some of these heresies. He also spoke against the heresy in which taught that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. Um, and he fought against that heresy and said it was it's the same God. Um, he also spoke a lot about um, Christ fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, um, that uh, it was through Christ that um, um, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which is interesting, I think. I believe it's um, someone else will speak on, but there's there's a lot of defense early on in the church for the Old Testament um, because I think back then they probably saw more as uh, well. That's a book for the Hebrews and like, um, but there's a lot of defense that yeah we need the Old Testament as well. And the New Testament wasn't quite formed yet, but even when we talked about in our last last podcast, there were a lot of letters already being influential and seen as um, um, inspired by God. A lot of letters are already considered inspired by God before the official making of the New Testament. So like 
the Gospels and Acts and a lot of letters of Paul, right? And so you already see a lot of the New Testament coming together very early on. Um, so that's that's very important for us too in our day and age to, to know that um, the the New Testament wasn't just this kind of a uh, let's just gather some letters. It wasn't like this flippant thing. It was over a period of time in which the Christians were very serious about the text that they chose as not just what they chose, but also believed and, and were led by God um, to um, form the New Testament. So, yeah, that's what I have. Um, anything else you have on Iron I Aeneas? think it's, I think we're solid. I think we're ready for All right. uh, gentleman number three. And number three is Tertullian, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> um, and uh, he was quite the person. Um, I have, there's quite a lot on Tertullian so um, he was a kind of a pace setter as the church expanded as it continued to span into Latin the Latin speaking world um, he um, was really a pace setter really pushed that expansion of the church into the Latin speaking world um, he breaking even new ground in, in um, theological understandings and um, he, he's the one I guess who's given credit for coining the word Trinity um, which is now just a everyday Christian word, but he was kind of the one that kind of coined that. I guess at least is the one given credit for coining the world word Trinity. So he was born in AD 45 and uh, to a Roman centurion in Carth Carthage, um, and uh, he uh, was trained in Greek and Latin, and he became a lawyer in Rome which um, he was converted to Christianity in about um, AD 85. So he was also born and raised pagan, um, which is similar to um, who we had first with Justin Martyr. So um, um, he was raised pagan, not raised in a Christian home. Um, prior to his conversion, he indulged in the typical Roman life in Roman society, and which included sexual prescription. Uh, Promiscuity. Promiscuity. Thank you. Um, enjoying the games in the arena, and um, he was profoundly uh, affected. He was profoundly affected by the testimony of Christians who were martyred in the arena, and is likely, and it is likely that his um, conversion was a result of that. So that's um, pretty fascinating to think about too. That people who are watching Christians be killed in the arena actually became Christians themselves and he was one of them um, and uh, so when he was about 40 Tertullian converted to Christianity um, he embraced the gospel and was able to use his legal skills to defend Christianity from pagan um, attackers right? um, his apology defending the Christian faith contains one of the earliest and most eloquent pleas even for religious liberty, right? So we, um, we religious liberty that we hold so dearly here in America, we find its roots here in a Christian, um, a Christian apology. As Paul, Paul said, apology is defense of the Christian faith, which pleads for religious liberty. Um, he argued that the church was uh, self-supporting and provided the most peaceful citizens to the state, right? And it sounds a lot like Justin Martyr as well, who also um, spoke. Um, and wrote to the state, which we'll speak a little bit about later. Um, he said the government should be protecting such citizen, citizens and not persecuting them. Um, he also kind of believed the person, though he was defending the church and didn't want the persecution, but he was also saying 
the persecution um, was also helping um, the church grow right um, he I think he was one who was quoted that the the church was growing through the blood of the martyrs um, the blood of the martyrs was providing the growth of the church um, Tertullian was um, he was quite a character from from the readings that he um, really was focal, very adamant, very um, argu argumentative um, to the Christian faith. Um, Tertullian, and also he had a, his belief too was um, he had a really strong belief in, in in separating church and state, and he really believed that um, Christians. Uh, should be very sensitive to the idolatry associated with the things that were going on in Rome during the time. So he uh, was very sensitive to the idolatry associated with gladiator games, um, other violent claims, the plays and literature, the administration, even business guilds. Um, all the idolatry that was involved in the Roman society, he said Christians really, really need to be sensitive and conscious of the idolatry that was very rampant in Rome in that time. He's even quoted saying, um, he's quoted saying, what has Athens, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, right? So he's, he's, um, he's like, Athens um, has nothing to do with Jerusalem, essentially saying, um, what does the state have to do with the church, right? So, um, and a lot of that thought process we can find in our world today. Um, again, which I was talking to Paul before, that this is really interesting that a lot of things that we're speaking about in the church in our world today, they were speaking about it um, many, 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 many years um, before. The, the, what we're facing, and as you look at Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, so um, that's what Scripture says. So. Um, he also, like I said, he fought for religious liberty and inalienable rights for men and um, really, again, fought for um, the Christian faith and apologetics. Uh, later on, Tertullian's life, he adopted kind of, it's called, mot I know I'm pronouncing this wrong, Montanism? That. No, that's my best guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which marked him as like a heretic in the church. Um, despite the move, his early writings maintained their popularity and value among his peers and have remained a valuable part of our theological heritage. Um, so he kind of followed, ended up following a philosophy which was really... Um, Really what made his philosophy so different was that he literally pulled himself away from everything um, and became very radical in his separation of church and state that he became not involved in anything that was going on. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit about Tertullian. Um, fascinating, and I'm sure Paul has a little bit more he could add to it. Yeah, this uh, Montanism thing was interesting because it, it sounds like he... Uh, Tertullian was a, a well-respected writer and leader in the church, and then he just kind of, I mean, he was, he was always probably perceived as fairly radical uh, in his views and in his asceticism, like his, his need to um, stay pure in the midst of a corrupt culture was always something he was very passionate about. Um, but, you know, the, I think his contemporaries kind of saw him go, uh, felt like he kind of lost <laughs> at the end of his life because he, he, they would they would suggest he he went overboard with it. This Montanism was a, a movement uh, where the, the folks believed that 
the end of the world was imminent, and so they demanded this uh, this strict moralism of the followers because uh, basically it was it was like the uh, the midnight hour, and and everybody was going to be called to account, and if you didn't get your stuff together right then, it was going to be too late. So they they urgently uh, lived this life of of extreme asceticism. And it turned out that uh, for Tertullian, the Montanists weren't even extreme enough for him, because what right. I read was that eventually right. he even left that movement, right. started his own movement um, in in a uh, uh, different area. And um, and ended up never kind of reverting back to traditional uh, Christian beliefs, or at least the the mainstream Christian uh, community. Um, and the movement he started actually lasted for about three hundred years in in Africa. Um, but like we said, most of his contemporaries they rejected him. They belittled his legacy after he had left the church. Um, but they they still you know as they write about him, you, you can tell they still admired his. His writing, his intelligence, his wit, uh, just a, an absolutely incredible writer uh, and ultimately was known f- more for his writings than for anything else that he did or, or said. Um, but uh, the uh, modern scholars you know, are more forgiving of his uh, change uh, later in life and, and his changed path. And um, he's, he's known, I think, amongst modern scholars as a great proponent of this notion that uh, the church needs to remain distinct from the culture. We need to protect ourselves against the, the failings of our culture. Uh, so that's really the mark that he left on the church um, and uh, still known to this day. So that's uh, Tertullian. Yep. And to, to round things out, uh, we have, uh, drumroll, Origin. Was that exciting enough for a drum roll? I was I gonna know. do a drum roll, but uh, I I jumped it. Enough time. Sorry about oh. that. You want to do it now? Oh, okay. Okay. Origin. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's cheering. Uh, so Origin. Uh, so just to, to be specific, this is uh, Origin, uh, not of species. This is not Origin of species. This is Origin. <laughs> of uh where was he of <laughs> was alexandria he, of alexandria yeah. i always just thought that was funny that yeah. uh every time i heard his name i would think of the origin of species and wow. back in the day people were known from the town they were from so right. there was you know paul of damascus and origin of species but he's not really from species. <laughs> so origin was born in 185 a.d so he was the the last of the the four um of that we're discussing today uh, to be born the last to die in 254 a.d um and uh, his his personal life um was uh, uh that he was uh raised by believing uh, parents his, his father in fact was martyred um in the great persecution of 202 that put uh, origin at about 17 years old so origin had to provide after the death of his his father for his mother and his six younger brothers. Uh, so what a start in life, right? Uh, but he, he earned a living perhaps early on, uh, scholars believe, by teaching grammar. He lived a life of extreme, once again, similar to Tertullian, extreme asceticism. Uh, there's even um, there's even documentation that uh, people believed he, he castrated himself because in his position as teacher, he was instructing young female students and he wanted to protect himself against uh, temptation. There's also a possibility this is embellished gossip. Um, <laughs> historians 
um, maybe for good reason, can't really attest one way or another to whether this is true fact. Um, a wealthy Christian named Ambrose, and I know I'd encountered that name before, I don't know if, if it's here or elsewhere, but uh, uh, was uh, very wealthy, and at the time he uh, hired all these shorthand writers to assist Origen in his, uh, in his writing, in his uh, aspirations as a, a writer. And so Origen, with all of these shorthand writers, was able to pump out all of these, these writings. Uh, he, he wrote about different theological sub subjects. He wrote uh, commentaries about specific books of uh, scripture. And many of those manuscripts uh, still exist, even if in small fragments and pieces here and there. Um, he debated with many Gnostic leaders over the years. It seems to be a trait that uh, was common amongst all early church leaders, having to, to debate uh, against these Gnostics. Uh, he was in high demand as a, a preacher, so he's both a writer and a speaker. Ultimately settled into the area of, of uh, Caesarea, and he attracted many pupils, many who wanted to learn underneath him. Um, and uh, just a, a few fun facts uh, before we round out his life. Uh, one was that he, he published a, a transcript of a church council meeting that he was a part of once in which uh, the debate at the meeting was around the nature of the soul. I thought this was interesting. Uh, there were some that believed that the soul uh, was actually our blood. Our blood was our, our soul. Um, and that that was God's in, intent uh, in, in helping us understand this, this soul was to connect those two themes. Uh, so I haven't really wrapped my head around that yet, but uh, interesting that they were debating that at the time. Um, Origen saw Christianity as a, a, a ladder of divine ascent. He believed that believers were always seeking to attain to higher levels, higher rungs on this ladder. Uh, God was the ultimate good. In the world, people were free to, to follow, uh, to ascend this ladder or not. Um, he believed that God created rational beings out of an, an overflow of love, but um, that these beings neglected to properly adore God, and, and so they fell from grace. And this is where I think uh, his beliefs kind of strayed from traditional Christian views. He, he believed that these rational beings, as they kind of let God down uh, early in creation, they, they fell, and, and the more wicked you were, the further you fell. Um, the more faithful to God you were, the, the, the less you fell. So uh, those that fell the least ended up becoming angels. Those that fell in the middle were human beings, and those who had the, the most epic falls because they were evil at heart ended up becoming demons of, of some sort. Um, he believed that redemption was this, this grand education uh, that a person achieved over a course of time by, by God's providence in which their souls were restored to the original blessedness that God intended us uh, to experience. And that the climax of this redemption um, of, of humanity as a race over time was the incarnation of God's pre-existent son. So, you know, clearly a believer in Christ and uh, his role in, in our redemption, uh, but a little unconventional in, in uh, some of the, the less essentials here. Um, his, his perhaps his most well-known and, and uh, highly regarded commentary was about the Song of Solomon, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and he wrote kind of um, highlighting the mystery of this union between the individual soul, uh, the bride that we represent, and, and the logos, uh, which is uh, Jesus, the groom. Um, so this relationship, and this is what Song of Solomon is, but he put his own particular flair on it. Um, 
let's see, his, his greatest influence uh, throughout his life came through his exegesis of the Bible, so just breaking down and, and commentating on, on Scripture directly, his ascetic ideals. Um, he was highly, uh, highly controversial uh, amongst Christian circles. Um, he was accused of allowing his pagan philosophies to come into his views of, of the faith and of the gospel, uh, which I think we can see some, some hints of in what I've described. Um, but uh, in, in his uh, people began to um, look down upon him after his death, and especially uh, beyond that, hundreds of years later, by the 6th century, he was being uh, denounced by church leaders as a, a complete and utter heretic. Uh, of course, uh, opinions you know, change over time. We're able to value some of the things that he contributed. Um, but accusations against Origen um, early on were, were these. One, that he presented that uh, Jesus was somehow inferior to the Father. Uh, one, that he spiritualized away the resurrection of the body. So he, didn't, he wasn't uh, as focused on the physical resurrection, just on the spiritual implications. Uh, he denied the existence of hell. He speculated about pre-existent souls and worldly cycles. You know, so pagan philosophy is coming in there. And uh, he dissolved redemptive history into myth uh, through overuse of, of allegory and interpretation. So he, he didn't focus as much on the, the literal and the physical, just uh, kind of was up in the clouds a lot and almost lost the, the importance of the tangible um, aspects of our faith. Uh, and, and finally, how did, uh, how did he go out in 250? Uh, there was a great persecution under Emperor uh, Decius. So uh, in 250, he would have been about 65 here. Um, he was imprisoned. He was tortured during this persecution, but he, uh, he was not killed. He survived uh, and then passed away about four years after this. Uh, he was buried in, in Tyre. Um, and uh, his, his tomb was held in high honor for many, many years, even referenced by uh, historians in centuries later who were writing about the, the period of the Crusades, who were referencing the tomb of uh, Origen uh, right there in Tyre. So that's uh, kind of a rundown on, on Origen. Any, any, uh, anything you'd like to contribute there, Stephen? Uh, no, I mean, it sounds good. I, a little bit what you say about the textual criticism, it... Um, from what I researched, I found is that he had did a comp comprehensive guide to the Old Testament, um, and it's estimated it was like six hundred and six thousand five hundred pages long. It took twenty eight years to complete um, this this textual criticism of the Old Testament. But um, yeah, I, th I think you covered it. Yeah, I, I, I think I accidentally skipped over that note on my uh, the Hexapla, I think yeah, it was called. Hex, yeah, yeah he, he compiled six versions of the Old Testament that he found and created a synopsis of them. And right. one of them I found was interesting. He, he uh, actually happened upon it when he was in Israel. He was wandering through the Jordan Valley, and he found this uh, the entire text of the Old Testament, I guess, or what was considered... Old Testament at the time in a glass jar. Um, so that was one of the six versions of the Old Testament that he compiled yeah. into one. Interesting. So yeah, those are the um, four guys that we um, that we did research on. And um, and real quickly, I know we're here at the end, but real quickly we'll look at kind of the themes, um, similar themes that all of them had. Um, that I've mentioned several times, but one of the one of the major themes is the defense of Christianity um, against Rome, or defense of Christianity explaining Christianity to Rome, 
um, both Tertullian and Justin Martyr, and I would probably say Irenaeus and Origen at some point, even though we don't have their writings, but there's huge defense um, of Christianity and how important Christianity was and how it's not a threat to the emperor, how it's not a threat to Roman life, and, um, and that killing Christians uh, was not the way to go, and the fight for religious freedom, and um, it's just interesting that um, these men took, took high regard to write to the emperor and Roman senate um, to explain the Christian faith. Because actually, too, it's funny because the Christian faith at this time was seen as an atheistic religion because Christianity, even to this day, truly doesn't have um, what you would think of as, like, religious symbol. Like, we, we don't have an idol of God. We don't have this image of God. Now, we can see pictures of Jesus and stuff, but we don't have this picture of this of God, right? And, and, and Jews also were very different in this as well, that when Rome came to the Jews, they didn't have a, this God, because you think of Rome and Greece, they had all their gods were statues and, and idols, and they were everywhere, but like Christians and Jews they didn't have those, those uh, items, those um, idols um, of their gods. So was, hmm. they were almost seen as, as atheists um, because of that. But um, these writers, these thinkers, these philosophers, these Christians are writing um, to Rome in defense of the Christian faith, um, explaining how it was not a threat to Rome, which hundreds of years later it would become the official religion of Rome. Um, but we'll get to that at some other point. So another theme, Paul, that you had that you think? I just uh, I think looking at these um, gentlemen and and their contributions to our understanding of of uh, the history of our faith. I think uh, you know at the time, of course, uh, Tertullian and Irenaeus, and uh, you know they they didn't recognize um, the importance. I think of the this period in in history and the incredible role that they were going to play in in shaping um, what the the church was ultimately going to look like and what our belief system uh, was going to look like. Uh, so just looking back and seeing how uh, how intent they were on on writing these uh, apologies and and expressing just in a world where um, there was a lot of a lot of confusion I think at the time around what what exactly a Christian was um, there's just so many different factors you had the uh, ancient Judaism and and the beliefs and so you, you at least have this notion of monotheism from there that there is one God. Um, God, you know, throughout the Old Testament, knowing that his people were going to be surrounded by people groups that worshipped multiple gods and, and worshipped idols and all this stuff. He kept saying, I'm a, I'm a jealous God. Just, you know, you need, to, you need to know that, guys. I'm a jealous God. There's only one of me, and uh, don't stray from that. So you had the Judaism that introduces that thought, but uh, Christianity continues this, this notion of a, a single God, but it really confuses things by saying that all of a sudden God has a son and there's a spirit. And then we talked about the notion of the Trinity coming into play so um, so Christianity is advocating for this which throws off the Jews um, and the the Greeks and the pagans at the time still don't understand monotheism in general because they're worshiping everything that they can see and everything that you know they have in their possession um, and uh, trying to get a, a handle on this uh, you know early in the Christian church 
and without uh, the, the New Testament having been gathered and authenticated yet, you know, so you can't just hand people a document and say, this is Christianity, you know. So these early church fathers had a hugely important role uh, to try and spread the truth and, uh, and just squash all of the controversy and the heresies and everything. Uh, I think they played an incredibly important role and are often neglected. You know, we, we love to read about uh, the early apostles, the early church, uh, and we skip to the people that we've known in our lifetime. So I, I think this is why Stephen and I felt it was so important to, to get to know some of these names, but even maybe more more so important to understand the, the themes that existed, uh, the, the, the uh, trends in, in their periods of history, and uh, what pivotal roles they played in, in getting us uh, a, a faith that we can understand and and. Uh, and lean on um, and just this uh, historical foundation for it uh, so important to us and we take for granted so I'm, I'm thankful even though I can't pronounce their names and uh, up until you know a couple weeks ago didn't know a whole lot about them thankful for their contributions yeah yeah I think that's a good way to, to wrap it up there um, so thank you all for listening thank you all for um, sticking with us if you're listening to this far into the podcast thank you so much um, we're excited about um, what we have coming up next and uh, again um, we pray that you continue to listen we pray that this podcast is a strength and encouragement for your faith and um, yeah and we'll be signing off until next time <laughs>